you to open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. As you find your way there, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a holy God. You are one who is over all, who is perfect. Lord, but yet in your perfection and your holiness, you still saw fit to save sinners. There is no way that we could save ourselves. Lord, we are your enemies. We have rebelled against you. <laughs> As the sovereign king over all, we have decided to go our own way. And yet you love us in Christ and you draw us to yourself. Lord, those whom you call by no means will you cast out. Lord, those who you hold in your hand, you will not drop. Lord, not because we deserve it, because there's any... Uh, any merit that we have, but rather it's all of your grace and your love and your mercy in Jesus. Thank you for that. Lord, help us now as we come to your word to look at it, to read it, to seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, maybe in, in big ways, but or in small ways. Lord, use it to show us our sin, to convict us of wrong motives or attitudes. Lord, help us to confess our sin. And as we do that, to turn to you, we can be made more like Christ. In his name, amen. If you have your Bibles, Mark 8, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Please follow along as I read. <clears throat> In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. <clears throat> Carrie and I were married at her home church uh, in Elyria, Ohio. And so, a few days before the wedding, my groomsmen and I, four close buddies of mine, piled into one of their cars, and we left Ankeny. And we were heading towards Elyria, which is just outside of Cleveland. And if you ever have driven to Cleveland or east that way for any reason, you know it's basically a straight shot. Literally, it was two rights to get on Interstate 80, and then the next turn should have been a right to get off of Interstate 80 in Elyria. Now, in between there is like 800 miles, but pretty much it's a straight shot. And we were going along the interstate, and we were having a good time, and uh, talking, uh, hanging out. Some guys were sleeping, eating snacks, you know, all the good stuff you do on a road trip. 
And we were going, and we just passed Chicago, made it through Chicago there, and we were going to be heading across Indiana. And we were going, 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 and all of a sudden I looked around, I was in the back seat, and I saw a sign and it said, welcome to Michigan. It's like, huh. Well, I know Interstate 80 skirts pretty close to the border of Michigan in northern Indiana. Maybe we, we just crossed it. Maybe I've just misremembered. Okay. So <laughs> we're traveling along. All of a sudden, I saw a sign that said, Lansing, Michigan, 50 miles. I'm pretty familiar with geography of the United States. I'm like, Lansing, like, that's definitely like up in the mitt. Like, are we going the right way? And this was before really even smartphones. We saw flip phones. Gary Carpenter still had flip phones, you know? And so we couldn't get on Google Maps and see. So we're looking around at all the signs. State of Michigan, you know, uh, Ann Arbor, uh, Detroit. It's like, wait a minute. This is, I don't remember this. The times that I've been to Elyria. And all of a sudden, um, I came to the realization, we are going the wrong way. And I yelled at my friend Scott, who was driving. And uh, I was like, where are we at? What are we doing? He's like, I just followed the road. I did, I'm just following the interstate. It's like you said. I'm like, I told you to stay on Interstate 80 East. He goes, I am, I am. And it's like, all of a sudden we look and you know, a little interstate and it's whatever the interstate is. It's not 80 that goes up into Michigan. I said, get off. So we get off and we go into the gas station. The, the gas station tenant probably thought we were crazy. Like five college guys come running in. Where are we at? You know, the guy's like, we're in, you're in Michigan. It's like, well, are we? He's like, no, you, you missed the turn. There is one turn on Interstate 80 coming just past Chicago, and that's when the toll road kicks in to go across to Indiana. And it is not well-marked at all. You have to be looking for the signs. And my roommate, who was driving, missed the sign. And so he kept trucking right along instead of veering off onto this one turn lane to get onto Interstate 80 to keep going east. We eventually found our way back to Interstate 80, after a few random frantic texts from my then fiance, where are you guys at? You're what? We have, you know, we have to decorate the church and all this stuff. It's like, I know we're, we'll be there. Get back on the road. We make it there in time. That being said, you're traveling, right? We miss the sign. And now anytime that we go that way, I always think, ah, there's the sign. <laughs> and there've been several other times that we've been going to Elyria uh, to visit people out there, and I've almost caught myself missing that turn. But I'm like, no, I got to watch for it. I got to watch for it. I got to look for the signs, right? There's signs all around us, whether you're traveling to look for uh, signs for roads or names of towns or whatever it may be, or just around you, signs. People are putting up signs, that song uh, that's on the radio, right? Sign, sign, everywhere, sign. And they're trying to grab our attention, some trying to direct us in a certain way. Some trying to get us to do something. Some trying to sell us something. Signs, they're everywhere. But we can easily miss signs as well, like we did on our way to Ohio. As we come to Mark chapter 8 this morning, Jesus performs a wonderful miracle, one that has been performed before, but we see here repeated with a different group of people. And he has another confrontation with the religious leaders. And they are demanding a sign. They want Jesus to prove to them who he is. And yet, they have missed the signs all along. 
They have a hardness of heart. They have been blind to who Jesus is. But not only the religious leaders, but even the disciples, again, show a dullness of faith. And that brings us to our big idea is that hardness of heart leads to blindness of who Jesus is. When our hearts are hardened towards God, it leads to blindness of who Jesus is, of what he's done, of what he's accomplished. We miss things in our lives. We miss things that God has done. And whether you may be an unbeliever, your hardness of heart leads to blindness in the greatest way, that you miss Jesus as Savior. But if you know Christ as your Savior, there is still a hardness of heart that can lead to a blindness of his work in your life. Let's look here at the disciples and at the religious leaders and how this hardness of heart impacts them and how it can impact us. So first, the disciples. The disciples forget what he's done. Hardness of heart leads to blindness of who Jesus is, and their hardness of heart is brought upon by forgetting what he's done. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we are introduced here again that a great crowd is coming to Jesus and his disciples. And this, I'm sure as your heading says in your Bible, is the feeding of the 4,000. A couple chapters ago, we had the feeding of the 5,000. Now, you might not be aware of this, but there are two feeding miracles in the Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000, which is the more well-known of the two, um, because it's recorded across all the Gospels. And then the feeding of the 4,000, which is recorded here in Mark and also in Matthew. Those two uh, gospel writers record this. Now, some people look at this account and they say, well, it's, they call it a doublet. It's the same miracle, just restated again. Certain people take that position. I don't take that position. I think this is a separate, distinct miracle, though very similar to the one that has already happened. Why? Why do I think that? Well, Jesus has healed many people. He has made the blind see and the lame walk, and he's done that over and over again. He has performed the same miracle over and over again. So it's not outside of his practice to, in a sense, repeat a miracle. His miracles aren't always unique. Now, there are different aspects with them, but generally they are the same. It's the healing of those who are sick and diseased, the casting out of demons, and then the provision of material things. So you think of the wedding at Cana where he uh, fills up the wineskins, where he feeds the 5,000, where he feeds the 4,000. And there are certain aspects to where these things are repeated generally, but the specifics are different than the feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew has those same specifics. So the different number of bread, different numbers of fish, the different numbers left over, just the different number of people in general and then also where it fits in the flow of the narrative, that this is a different location by all appearances. So this is a separate, distinct miracle from the feeding of the 5,000. But it's still very similar. So a crowd has gathered around, and they have nothing to eat. And his disciples, and he called to his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. So once again, we see Jesus' compassion on these people how he wants to provide for them, how he cares for them. As we talked in uh, Mark 6 about the feeding of the 5,000, he is the shepherd, the compassionate shepherd. And he looked on them like sheep without a shepherd. And he, he had, in a sense, felt sorry for them. He wanted to provide for them. Here again, he has compassion. 
And they've been with Jesus and his disciples three days and they've had nothing to eat. How many of you would get maybe a little cranky after not eating for three days? Yes. Pastor James can barely make it to lunch some days. We'll be sitting in my office talking and he'll just kind of daze off and it's like, Pastor James, you need a granola bar? Yeah, right? Some of us can barely make it from breakfast to lunch or, or, or lunch to supper, whatever it may be. And here they were with him three days. And he says, if I send them away, they're out in the wilderness again. They're going to faint. They're not going to make it. They're going to uh, uh, pass out. And he says, some have come from far away. Verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Again, the disciples asked the same question that they did in uh, the previous miracle. How can we feed these people? There's no supermarket around us. There's no gas station. <laughs> There's no a bakery around us. How can we feed all these people? 4,000 people. Now, in one sense, this question is appropriate. Ah, that's a lot of people to feed. If you've ever uh, made a meal for a large group of people, it's a big deal. But over 4,000, where are we going to get that much food? But there's also an aspect in here that the disciples are forgetting who they're with. And Mark does this throughout his gospel. He presents a situation and he presents Jesus saying something, making a statement, and then the disciples questioning it. And he, he does this pattern to show, as one commentator said, the dullness of faith of the disciples. They, on a certain level, believed in Jesus and followed him, but their faith was not sharp. It was dull, right? If you've ever cut with a dull knife, it works, but not very well. You've tried to cut with something that's sharp, but it's dull, and it's not a clean cut. It, it's, it, it maybe rips or tears, and it doesn't work that well at all. The faith of the disciples was dull. It's there, but it's, it, it's, it's not sharp, and it's, it's not how it's supposed to be. They have forgotten what Jesus can do. This was just the same Jesus who just performed a very similar miracle probably a few months or weeks earlier. Verse 5, and Jesus asked them, he says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So here we have seven loaves of bread. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. So very similar, this continued imagery of a feast, of a meal, right? Jesus blessing the bread and breaking it and passing it out. And they sit down, and they receive the bread. And he says that they also had a few small fish in verse 7. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. They ate to their content. They were full. This idea of satisfaction is the same idea in, in the feeding of the 5,000. They ate till they were content. It was not just a little something to get you by. Uh, you know, that uh, your, your mom just gives you to get you to the next meal time, right? Here are a few crackers. Here's a cheese stick. No, this is a full proper meal. <laughs> and they were satisfied. And they had some left over. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And Mark recounts for us that there were about 4,000 people. 
In Matthew, it says there are 4,000 men plus women and children. Again, accounting the numbers in this day was often counted by men and that women and children were assumed to be there as well. So Mark says 4,000 people. Matthew says 4,000 men plus the women and children. So it was more than 4,000 people. So they ate, they were satisfied, and then he sends them away. Verse 10, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua, or Dalman, I, I always want to say Dalmatia, uh, Dalmanutha. It's also in your footnote might say uh, Magadan or Magdala. Some people believe this is the area where Mary is from, Mary, Magdalene, Mary of, of Magdala. Uh, but it's uh, towards the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a Gentile area. Jesus here is still in a Gentile area. And that's another indication here that the message that Jesus is proclaiming is not only for the nation of Israel, but also for the Gentiles. Some scholars believe that the majority of this group were Gentile believers, contrary to the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000. We aren't for sure, but more than likely, the area that they were in was Gentile area. And so, again, we see the Gentiles as recipients of this provision and blessing from Jesus as he welcomes them in to his plan. So they go over to this other area. As we look at this, and we would think, well, it's a very simple explanation, right? A big crowd, Jesus has compassions, where are we going to get food? He multiplies the bread, multiplies fish, they eat, they were content, there's some left over, and they go. But why is this included here? Well, I think Mark is reaffirming for us in his narrative flow of the dullness, as I've said before, of the disciples' faith. Mark does not necessarily present the disciples in a good light <laughs> throughout his gospel. He often kind of uh, uh, describes them as kind of bumbling, you know, kind of uh, just kind of feeling their way in the dark. They have a glimpse of who Jesus is, but not fully yet. And we see that here is that they ask, well, where are we going to get bread? Who's this going to come from? How are we going to get enough food? They have forgotten of what Jesus has done. The disciples forget what Jesus has done, how he's already fed 5,000, how he has uh, performed miracles upon miracles, how they themselves have gone out with his power and cast out demons. You know, I read this and I think, oh, come on, disciples. Can't you figure it out? And then when I stop and think, man, I'm probably more like the disciples than I realize. Right? How, how often have I forgotten what God has done? A situation comes up in my life and it's difficult. It might be uh, a trial, some circumstance that I have no control over. Maybe it's a, it's a temptation to sin in my own life. Maybe it's a, an interpersonal relationship that is difficult. And I'm thinking, man, how am I going to get through this? Oh, I don't know. This is, I don't know. And my eyes and my mind move from focusing on God and what he's doing to my circumstance. And in doing so, I forget what God has done. How God has been faithful. I love the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's one of my favorite hymns. I love verse 3. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, right? Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Blessings, all mine, with 10,000 besides. Great is thy faithfulness. 
How often do I turn my eyes off of Christ and what God has accomplished in Christ, what he's even done in my own life? You know, sometimes looking back and living in, in, in what's happened can be a bad thing, right? Living in the past, that can be a bad thing. When you're focused on that and you're, you're seeking something that was there that can't be replicated now, right? The good old days. That, that can be not helpful sometimes. But what is helpful is looking back to the past and remembering what God has done in the past, right? You're not holding and clinging to those things and desiring to go back there, but rather you look back and you say, oh man, look how God was faithful. Remember how, how God provided this and, and he did this and, oh, remember, I don't know if we were gonna make it, but yet we did and God's goodness. Sometimes looking forward, we don't know what God's gonna do and we're scared and we get our eyes off of him. But looking back, we can see the, the other side of what God was doing. Oftentimes in the scriptures, uh, people are commanded to remember, especially the nation of, nation of Israel. Remember that the Lord took you out of Egypt. Remember that the Lord provided in the wilderness. Remember that the Lord brought you into the promised land. Remember when the Lord tore down the walls of Jericho. Remember, remember, think back. You don't live back there, but remember what God has done. Remember his faithfulness. And that faithfulness is the same going forward. The disciples took their eyes off of Christ and they were looking at their circumstances. They forgot what he has done. We forget. And that rings true today for us. We need to remember what God has done. First and foremost, remember how God has saved you. How he has brought you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. That he has taken you who was dead in your trespasses and sins and have made you alive in Christ that you are his enemy, you are a rebel against the king of the universe, and now you are part of his family. First and foremost, we need to start there. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. But then look at the other circumstances, how God has been faithful, in small ways and big ways. And that's why our church, our body of believers, is so helpful in this. Because we can give testimony, we can share, oh, I remember that was a difficult circumstance, but this is how God provided and I didn't think I was going to be able to get through this, but looking back, I saw how God lined up all these things and how God was faithful. We need to remember and think back and not forget. And as we look to the past, we can then look to the future and say, what is God going to do now? Right? We may not know. It might be a little scary sometimes, but how is God going to provide? He's been faithful in the past. What is he going to do in the future? And how much more is he going to show himself faithful? We face difficulties today, but let us remember what the Lord has done, what he is doing, and what he's promised to do. So we think of the promise of building his church, right? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell should not prevail against us. We look at the circumstances around us, maybe in our, in our nation, in the world, and we think, oh my goodness, what's gonna happen? <laughs> That's a valid question. But think about what has happened through history and how yet the church has survived. And how the church will survive no matter what, no matter who's in charge. Even in our own circumstance here. I was walking around outside this week when there wasn't snow on the ground. Um, and I looked at the bell out front. I think it says 1870 or 1871, I think something around there. And I just thought, man, 
that was, that's an old bell. <laughs> like, it's, you know, how often do you hold something that's still around from 1870? Now, I didn't hold it. I was touching it, you know. <laughs> but just pausing and reflecting God's faithfulness to the people in this church. Good times, bad times, hard times, times of blessing. You know, what is he going to do in the future? What is it going to look like? How is he going to provide? How is he going to move us? How is he going to shape us to be more like Jesus? And how is he going to use us for his honor and glory? So as we face difficulties and circumstances, let us keep our eyes on Christ and remember, not forget, and let our hearts not be hardened towards him. The disciples forgot, but Jesus reminded them by this miracle. And they head in a ship to a different area. And Mark abruptly introduces our next point here in verse 11. So they must have landed at some point. And it says in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. The religious leaders in Matthew's account of this, he includes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Mark just includes the Pharisees here because that's been a common enemy or a common combatant in his narrative. But Matthew expands it to the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So religious leaders. So when you hear me use the term religious leaders, I'm using that to include Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, because there's a, a group of them there um, confronting Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's interesting that Mark includes just Pharisees, but Matthew says Pharisees and Sadducees, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not friends. They were, in a sense, the religious right and the religious left. One was the conservative, orthodox keeping of the law, the Pharisees, and one was the liberal arm of the Jewish religion that cared about power and authority and making friends with Rome, the Sadducees. So here you have two enemies coming together to question and combat Jesus, right? We know the statement, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's the case with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the religious leaders came, and in verse 11, it says that they began to argue with him. Begin to argue with him. This word argue is the idea of debating. Debating in an angry manner. This is a yelling. I have the bad tendency that when I get into a maybe heated discussion, my voice goes up in volume. Uh, that might be the case for some of you. Um, <laughs> my wife sometimes will be like, do you realize how loud you are right now? No, I don't, okay? Let's ratchet that down. <laughs> this arguing is heated. It's an exchange of words. And why are they arguing? Verse 11, it says, they are seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So the disciples forgot what Jesus had done. And here the religious leaders doubt what he has done. Their hardness of heart that leads to blindness is manifested in doubt. They do not believe what Jesus has done and who he says he is. It says they came seeking a sign from him from heaven to test him. So that word sign there is uh implies a miracle, but it's more than that. It's the idea of confirmation. Uh, many times today, if you do something 
maybe online and you fill something out, they send you a confirmation email. We just finally got our taxes back and we e-filed and you have to you know, sign online and then you send it off and then you get a confirmation email. Uh, and I was worried because it took like 30 seconds for the email to come back, right? That's how instant our lives are now. It's been 30 seconds. Where's that email? Finally, I got the email, but it says confirmation that you have you know, signed your, your uh, 1040 tax returns and they've been submitted. Okay, good. It's a confirmation. It's a saying, what you have done has been received and it is confirmed to be correct. The religious leaders wanted a sign or confirmation from Jesus from heaven that he is who he says he is. So a couple things about this here. First off, has a sign from heaven been given to Jesus to confirm who he is? If you think back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and it's uh, evident in every Gospel, there was an event that happened with John the Baptist. Jesus was baptized. He goes down into the water, and as he goes down into the water, the skies open, and what descends? A dove. It was the Holy Spirit, right? In the form of a dove, came to rest upon Jesus. And then what happened? A voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's a, that's a pretty good sign, right? If, if you ask me, a voice from heaven doesn't happen often. And if it is happening often to you, love to visit with you. <laughs> but the idea that the skies would open and that there was a crowd there that saw a dove descend and the voice say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So there's a sign. Now, has Jesus done anything else since then to maybe prove that he is not your average person? Yes. I heard Jody whisper probably every day. <laughs> yeah. For a year, at least probably in the flow of Mark's gospel here, he's performed miracles. He has not only performed miracles, but he's taught with authority, right? He goes into the synagogue and he explains from the Old Testament and they are in awe because he teaches as one with authority. There are all kinds of evidences in the ministry of Jesus that demonstrate who he is, what he has come to do, and that he is completely unlike any other prophet. But yet they demand a sign from heaven. It's not enough. They want something on their terms. Have you ever uh, come across somebody who has said, yeah, but j j just show me. They, they want to be proved about something in the way that they want to. That nothing you could say could please them because it doesn't fit exactly what they want or what they think. I think that's a little bit with the religious leaders. They wanted this sign to be very clear, but yet they missed all the other signs. They were not convinced because of their hardness of heart. Again, the people who should know that Jesus is who he says he is more than anyone are missing who he is. It says they seek a sign from heaven to test him. That word test is the same word that's used of Jesus in the wilderness with Satan how Satan tempted him or tested him, the religious leaders do the same thing. Isn't that interesting? 
that, that same idea is used here, that same word, that they wanted proof. Why Satan came and knew exactly who Jesus was and says, well, do this then. And Jesus responds, of course, with the word of God, man shall not live by bread alone, and several other psalms. Here, the religious leaders say, well, show us, show us. You know, cast yourself off a building. Turn this, these rocks into bread. You know, call down angels to your side. Show us. And Jesus does not. Verse 12 says, and he sighs deeply. What kind of sigh was this? Was it a prayer? But it says he sighed deeply in his spirit. And I think it was just a sigh of exasperation. (sighs) You don't get it. You don't get it, religious leaders. And this is what he says. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why do you seek a sign? And he says, truly, I say, none will be given to you. Now, Mark, or Matthew expounds upon this a little bit. And he includes the idea of red sky in morning, red sky at night, right? That my parents always recited to me, and I thought it was just from the farmer's almanac. I'm like, that's from Jesus, right? Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Um, it's ridiculous how much I still say that to myself, you know? But it's the idea of you look, religious leaders, to the skies and, and think that that's a sign when that is a very inaccurate way of predicting weather. But yet you look in my life and what I've done is not enough. You trust that saying, but you don't trust the fact that I can do miracles. See the contrast and the conflict here? And in the account in Matthew, he says, no sign will be given to you except this, the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Is Jesus going to jump into a fish? No. The sign of Jonah, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus is speaking. The only sign that will be given to you is the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. That this is who I am. Mark doesn't include that, but he just says simply that this generation will not receive a sign. And the word generation here is really interesting because it implies other generations. What were some of the other generations that were not good in the Bible? We're talking about Joshua in Sunday school. Remember that generation in the wilderness that complained and moaned and grumbled and as the 12 spies came back and two said, let's go. And 10 said, no way. They are like giants. We are like grasshoppers. That was a generation that would have to pass away before they would enter in the promised land. There's another generation that was not good. The generation of Noah. What did God do to that generation? He sent something called the flood to wipe out that evil and adulterous generation. This term is used several times, the generation of Noah and its sinfulness, the generation in the wilderness to where it grumbled and complained against God in spite of the fact that he parted the Red Sea, that every morning that there was bread, that quail would miraculously appeal, but yet they complained. He said that generation would be wiped out. And here, it's the same way Jesus says this generation Here I have come, and you do not receive me. You have no understanding of who I am when you should. No sign will be given to you. Verse 13, and he left them and got into the boat and went 
to the other side. What would be enough for these religious leaders? What more could Christ do to demonstrate who he is and what he's come to do? Nothing is going to be enough for them because of their hardness of heart. They demand signs. Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and following. He says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jews always demand signs. But yet, what does Paul say? He says, we preach Christ. They may want proof, but yet the proof is right there, but they do not see it. It is Christ crucified and resurrected. The religious leaders doubted who Christ was. Why? Their own pride, their hardness of heart, their desire for power. They were focused on themselves. One author warns us this way. He says, like the Pharisees, we are sometimes blind to the spiritual realities around us, the signs that are manifestations of God's presence and power. How could the Pharisees not have recognized the hand of God in Jesus' miracles? The likely answer is that they were obsessed with their own authority and position and viewed Jesus as a threat. All of us need to take care lest the things of the world, position, power, money, blind us to the greater purposes of the kingdom of God. Once again, when we look at the Pharisees and we say, oh, how could they do this? We need to be careful that we do not slip into that same pattern of being blinded with our hardness of heart where we are more consumed with the things of the world than spiritual things. Doubt can easily creep into our lives as it applies to the work of God. But may we echo the words of the man in Mark 9, which we're going to look at soon, when his, a child was sick and Jesus is speaking with him, and he responds to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes that's all we can pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. May we not be like the Pharisees who have hard hearts that lead to a blindness of doubt. May we not be like the disciples who are confused and forget what Jesus has done. But may we see the signs through the testimony of God's faithfulness in our life, through the testimony of his word, which we are to be in constantly. Our world is filled with signs, some wanting our attention, others warning us, others trying to sell us things. May we not be blind to the signs of the coming Christ in Mark. May we not miss the signs of God's work in our lives in the past and what he's doing. And may our hearts not be hardened, but may they be filled with trust in who God is and what he's done and what he's going to do. May we rejoice in all that we see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. And may we have hearts that are turned towards you and forgive us, Lord, when we turn, when we doubt, or when we forget. Lord, as the man in Mark 9 says, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, that we would understand who Jesus is and that he's making us more like himself. Lord, may we trust you. The big things and little things of life to guide and direct. And may we remember how you have been faithful in the past. Lord, may you keep us faithful as you are faithful. Lord, we love you. We pray for all this in your son's name.